Today's scripture reading comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verses 44 through 59. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is a judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jew said to him, Now, we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died, and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him, I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out to the temple. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Perhaps for some of you, today is the first day you are at a Christian church. And maybe for some, you've been going for a long time, regardless of whether it's your first day or your thousandth day. There is one question that in some sense, we probably are always asking, which is, who is this Jesus that I keep on hearing about in this place? There's a Christian thinker, philosopher, writer. His name is Clive Staples Lewis, and I'm sure some of you know him. And in his classic book, Mere Christianity, there is this one quote that is quite familiar, perhaps to many of you, and I want to repeat it here. He says this, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, him being Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. I have a feeling that when C.S. Lewis wrote this in Mere Christianity, he was influenced by the Gospel of John. Specifically, this passage in particular in John chapter 8, 
Because here, it seems as though Jesus, in his confrontation with the Pharisees, is actually answering those three charges. The charge of, are you a lunatic? Are you a liar? Or are you Lord? And any honest, sincere questioner of Christ has to wrestle with what Lewis is describing here. So what I'd like to do is from this passage, see how Jesus addresses these three charges. The first charge is that Jesus is a lunatic. And in verses 51 through 53 and verse 57, we get a sense of why the Pharisees would think of him this way and perhaps why maybe you think of him this way. Let me just read this for you one more time. Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus says, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? To me, that question is, who are you? Verse 57, so the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and have you seen Abraham? The Pharisees probably would not have minded if Jesus was just a lunatic, just a crazed man, just a man lost of his senses. Because in actuality, every society has their lunatics. Every grouping of people has their odd, strange people. Look around, we have odd, strange people. You know, we have those people in any group. So we don't mind lunatics as long as they stay in their lane, their lunatic lane. Then everything's okay. In fact, when we are on the streets and we see someone crazed, what happens? We quickly divert. We cross the street. We go to the other side. We just quickly turn around and go around that person. Sometimes lunatics in our society can actually be admired. You could say Henry David Thoreau, the great nonconformist, was a lunatic, different, odd, strange. Let me make one more uh, pop culture reference from the 80s. I'm sorry, everyone else. The Breakfast Club. That was a movie that was about a bunch of kids who were oddballs who were forced to serve detention together. For those of you who watched the movie, you might recall there was a, one character, his name was Andrew, played by actor Anthony Michael Hall. And this is what he says. We're all pretty bizarre. Some of us are just better at hiding it, that's all. And I wonder if perhaps when the Pharisees thought of Jesus, they might have thought, this man is crazy, bizarre. But I actually don't think they thought that because of their response. But maybe some of you, when you read the Bible and you read the Gospels and you read John chapter 8, this passage today, you think, oh, this Jesus is crazy. He's out of his mind. He's bizarre. Is he, though? The Pharisees don't think so, actually. That could be the charge. But if that was the charge, they probably would have just simply walked away, shaking their heads, dismissing him, resigned to say, oh, he's, he's just a crazy lunatic. But that's not what they do. If you look at how Jesus responds, he says in verse 51, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. That's a lunatic statement if you ever heard one. And then, of course, verse 57, another lunatic statement. Because there Jesus claims to have seen Abraham, who died 
a thousand years before Jesus lived. So you can understand why the Pharisees would say, you're not even 50 years old and yet you say you saw Abraham? Why would Jesus make these assertions? Verse 45 tells us why. I tell the truth. So look at what he's doing. He's linking truth to this idea that he saw Abraham before Abraham was even born. That if you trust him, abide in his word, you will never experience death. That is crazed. And you can't just simply say he's crazy because he's saying, no, this is the truth. Now, here's the problem is that many people, perhaps some of you, perhaps some in our world, our neighbors, our friends, our coworkers, when you talk about Jesus, they don't mind you talking about Jesus if he's just a philosopher like Buddha, Muhammad, if he's just another guy who is spouting out pithy sayings, Birkenstocks wearing hippie, who seems like a gentle soul and just has a few insights. People don't mind him at all, actually. They actually think he's a good guy. But as one mental uh, health worker noted, whenever he was working with his patients, he saw how many times different people tried to convince them that they were the real Jesus, that they held the universe in their hands. And so when you meet and confront such a person, you can see why C.S. Lewis, the former atheist, one of the greatest thinkers of his era, had to wrestle with this question as he's reading John 8. Is this guy crazy? The problem the Pharisees had was that they were dealing with someone who wasn't crazy, who was very logical, and they just couldn't understand him. On the one hand, he wasn't like those other crazed people that they had encountered. He wasn't someone who had simply lost their wits and lost their minds. Jesus had forced their hand. Jesus would not allow them to sit on the fence about him. They had to make a decision that if you've ever tried sitting on a fence, a white picket fence, I mean, just go home and if you have a white picket fence, go try it. Sit right in the middle. I think you'll find it to be very uncomfortable. You might be able to do it for 10 seconds, but eventually you have to come off. Eventually you have to pick a side. I'm going to come off on that side or this side. But you can't just simply sit there saying, everything's okay here. And that's what Jesus does. He doesn't allow us to think of him as a nice teacher who has some nice moral sayings that helps us to live life nicely, to be comfortable, to think about our children and to raise our families and to experience this world in a certain way. You have to either think of him as Lord or as lunatic. He just doesn't give us a choice. But here's the thing, is that if you look at what Jesus is saying, I don't think you can claim that he's just simply crazy. Theologian John Stott puts this so well, and he makes the difference. He says this, as for having a fixed delusion about himself, there certainly are psychotic people who imagine they are the Queen of Sheba, Julius Caesar, the Emperor of Japan, or some other VIP. But one thing is fatal to this theory in regard to Jesus. It is that deluded people delude nobody but themselves. You have only to be in their presence for two or three minutes before you know that they are withdrawn from reality and living in a world of fantasy, but not Jesus. He has succeeded in persuading or deluding 
millions of people for the very good reason that he seems to be what he claimed to be. When you consider the fact that over a billion people claim Jesus as Lord, either over a billion people are walking around without their minds, or this Jesus is speaking something of truth that has convinced very sound, very intelligent, very much individual thinkers to actually say, this Jesus is speaking the truth. So is he a lunatic? Secondly, is he a liar? Because that's what you probably should consider Jesus to be if you don't think of him as simply crazy and you're not thinking of him as Lord. And last week we spoke a lot about this concept of the lie and deception that Jesus calls Satan the father of lies. And that's how the Pharisees call Jesus. They walk down that road and they say, he's demon-possessed. If you look at verses 44 to 48, Jesus says, you, you Pharisees, you are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? It's so ironic that the Pharisees have reverted to calling Jesus a demon, saying he's demon-possessed, because Jesus earlier had said they look like Satan. They're children of Satan. They are lying and full of deceptions, just like their father. And so they are, they're in this sort of ping-pong match of who is really under the influence and power of Satan? The accusation that they hurl at Jesus is that he's a Samaritan and he's demon-possessed. It's a very odd statement. The Samaritan is probably because Samaritans were thought of very negatively. It wasn't just that they were a people who were a mixed race, and they were, but it was also they were compromisers of faith. They were people who had been left behind by the first exile of the Jews to Babylon, the people who are the lowest of the low, people that the Babylonians said, you know what, let's just leave them behind. They're so poor and so uneducated that they won't make any influence of, because they did that because they were always concerned about rebellion of the former people who were residing. And so they would exile everybody to make sure there was no rebellion against the Babylonian empire. And so this was the dregs of society. And those dregs, those Jewish dregs of society, it started intermarrying with all the native peoples. So they were ethnically mixed, as well as they were comprom so compromised in their faith, in their worship of God, that you couldn't even tell what they were worshiping. It was like a new religion. And so one way a Jew at this time in Jesus' day was to uh, hurl an insult at someone, really to be racist, you might say, was to call them a Samaritan. But not just to call them a Samaritan, but also to call him demon-possessed. 
I mean, what a horrific idea to call the savior of the world, the king of kings, someone who is not just bigoted, uh, to hurl a bigoted response, but to hurl a blasphemous charge against Jesus. And the reason they did this is because they had no answers for anything that he was saying. If you've ever been in a debate with someone or have some sort of argument with a person and you're dealing with the rationale and so they give a, a certain statement, you respond to that statement in response, then they respond to your logic and you respond to their logic. That's sort of how it's supposed to work in any type of debate, logical argument and flow. But there's a point where sometimes, and you see this so often in our world, where rather than dealing with the logic of the argument, they start calling you names. Usually that's when you know they've lost. It's called an ad hominem attack. And when they do that, when they say, you're just an idiot, you're just a moron. At the end of the day, they'll say, you, it doesn't matter what you say, you're an idiot. The reason they say that is because they have no recourse at all. They don't understand what you're saying. And so that's exactly what's happening to Jesus. The Pharisees have nothing left to say. They can't respond to the, his, his statements. And so at the end of the day, they just simply insult him. And what do they insult him with? Not just that he's a Samaritan, which he's not, but also that he is from hell. That's what it essentially means to be of a demon, to be demon-possessed. It's, it's like saying to someone, go to hell. And if you really want to say one of the most vile curses you can say against a person, worse than any expletive is to say, go to hell. That's the lowest, most insulting, most vile statement you can say about a person. And when you hear these Pharisees saying, go to hell, here's the thing is that we don't really hear Jesus responding to that as to say, oh, no, I'm not, I'm not going to go to hell. Which is why when we go to this picture of Jesus not as a lunatic, not as a liar, but as Lord, so much of that lordship flows out of this charge that, Jesus, uh, that the Pharisees give to say, go to hell, how he responds to that. Jesus is Lord because he does something dramatic. Verses 49 through 51, Jesus answered, I do not have a demon but I honor my father and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. I think there's something to this idea that Jesus, when he says, I do not seek my own glory, there is one who seeks it. He is the judge. That makes me think of Jesus at Gethsemane. When he went to prepare for the cross, to bear this crushing weight of sin, he decides his heart, his flesh, is to say, Father, remove this cup from me. But ultimately, when he says, not my will, but your will be done, what is he saying? He's saying, I am here for the mission and purpose of the glory of the Father. And you see it here in verse 50 as well, that this glory is there not because he seeks it, but he's there to do the will of the Father. Now, here's what this glory looks like. When the Pharisees say, you're of a demon, you need to be in hell. You, you, you deserve the greatest punishments of all. There's a, an idea that is 
just flowing out across, and it's this idea of Jesus going to hell. If any of you have ever said in any church context, the Apostles' Creed, you know there's that one line where it says, he descended into hell. On the third day, he rose from the grave. And I remember when I was younger, uh, a younger seminarian, uh, I was pastoring a church, and we used to say the Apostles' Creed every Sunday. And eventually I ran into that, that little phrase, and I thought, I think we should take that out. I don't think that's right theologically. And here's the thing is that I agree with John Calvin on this. I don't think Jesus physically descended into hell. But what I do think is that Jesus did descend into hell by bearing our sins, this, the weight and the consequence of hell. Every single person, sinner in this world is going to hell. All of us here. The question is, are you going to go because of your own merit, thinking, I don't need Christ, or is Christ going to go to hell for you? But everyone goes to hell. Everyone bears the punishment of sin. As Jesus says in verse 50, he is the judge. He will judge. He must judge. He must punish sin. If he is a holy God, he has to deal with the reality that we turn away from him. And if he is not perfectly just, he's not God. And if he's not God, then we are worshiping something crazed, truly a lunatic. But if this is God, then therefore every one of us is deserving of our punishment because of what our own sin. But is Jesus going to go to hell for you? Or are you going? This is the dark reality, but the greatest light of the gospel as we see in verses 49 through 51. And here's the promise. If Jesus bears the punishment of hell for you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. This is so confounding in verse 51 to the Pharisees that they're dumbstruck. They're so uh, sort of flabbergasted by this idea that verse 52 comes into play. Now we know that you have a demon. It's those very words that you will never taste death because they understand the implications. After all, who can say that a person would never see death again unless you're a lunatic, unless you're a liar, or perhaps you are Lord? Only God can keep someone from not experiencing the full punishment of eternal death. And this is exactly what Jesus is saying in verses 58 through 59 when he hammers this point home. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And so they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. There is no doubt what Jesus is saying in verse 58. In the times that I've spoken with Jehovah's Witnesses, they will argue John chapter 1, verse 1, till they're blue in the face. They will say, it is not he was God. They will say he is a God. And when you go through the gospel of John, you show them, no, John shows Jesus as God. One place you turn to is this verse. And it is undeniable for a few reasons. First of all, that concept of before Abraham was, meaning 
Jesus existed before Abraham lived, which, again, the Pharisees knew clearly what he was saying. So how does Jesus pre-exist Abraham? Secondly, he's calling himself, I am. And anyone who knows anything about the Bible and clearly, scriptures, and clearly the Pharisees did, knows that there's only one person who describes himself as I am. It was to Moses, and it was God, Yahweh himself. It was undeniable. Thirdly, once they pick up those stones, it reveals to all of us they know exactly what they're doing. Because Jesus could have, they could have taken out a sword and tried to stab him. They could have grabbed him and hung him on a tree. But instead, what they do is pick up stones. And the reason why you pick up stones, there's only one punishment for blasphemy, saying that you are God. It's stoning to death in Jewish law. So when Jesus is saying what he is saying before Abraham was, I am, there's no mistaking it. He's saying he is the Lord God. And when he says he is the Lord God, there's no fence sitting. There's nowhere where you can say, well, I, I could try to worship this Jesus every once in a while, but I'm, I can't accept everything that he says. You have to accept all of him or you're accepting nothing. Until we do this, when Jesus says, I do know him, I keep his word, he's saying he is God. and We have to respond to that. You can't treat the God of the universe as though He's just another appointment on your calendar. He has to be either Lord or he's lunatic or liar. Pastor Tim Keller tells at the time a woman who was teaching a class on the Bible. When he first became a Christian, she said this, if the distance between the earth of the sun, which is about 93 million miles, was just the thickness of a single piece of paper, if that's the distance, 93 million miles, I want you to know the diameter of our galaxy would be a stack of paper 310 miles high. And our galaxy is just one piece of lint in the whole universe, which is just filled with more galaxies than there are grains of sand on the seashore. Jesus Christ says, I created that. I hold it together with my pinky, a word of my power. And then she added, is this the kind of person you ask into your life to be your personal assistant? Is this the kind of person you say, don't call me, I'll call you? Is this the kind of person you say, well, you know what, or I'll do this and I'll do that if you do this and do that for me? This season, this day, Christmas, it's a reminder for us that the God that we worship is either a lunatic, a liar, or he's Lord. But if he's Lord, if he's the one who holds the galaxies with his pinky, and yet here we are, we put claims on him. See, the problem is that we think that Jesus is not that much different than Santa Claus. Santa Claus is someone that you, he has a list, checks it twice, make sure you're, either naughty or nice. He will come to your house as long as you put your cookies and milk out. Something you do triggers Santa Claus to come down that chimney and to give you the gift that you want. Isn't that how perhaps we see Jesus? 
when we pray and we say, Lord, please give me this job. Please give me this child that we can't have. Please give me a husband and wife. Please give me an A on this test. Please get me into this school. Please get me this interview. Do, please help me to do this and do that. And if we don't get it, suddenly God's not gracious. He's not good. He's not faithful. Again, the problem is that our instinct is to think, but I went to church for you. I'm going on this trip to Malawi. I am a leader in the church. I give this money. I do. I serve at City Impact last week. And so therefore, I deserve the answer to this. Jesus is that jolly old Saint Jesus, whom we say, put the cookies and milk out, be good, and he has to answer my prayer exactly. He has to give me what I want. If you read John chapter 8, you cannot conclude that is who Jesus is. He holds the universe with his pinky, with a word of his mouth. When we go through the valleys, I know some of you are. In this very room, you have lost loved ones. You have chronic pain. You are caring for elderly parents. And sometimes that is one of the most difficult tasks that we could have faced. Something is happening in your life and you think, God, are you there? You do not want a Santa Claus God to be there. You want the God of the universe to go to the darkest and deepest valleys with you. And his promise is, I will never leave you. And the way you know that to be true is he fulfilled his promise on the cross. He went to hell to bear the punishment of hell for you so that you would never experience that. Any good, kind, really solid mother or father would be willing to give up their life for their child. Jesus gave up far more than that. He gave up the very throne room of God for you. On this Christmas season, we must not simply let it go by with just simply gifts and holiday parties. May we always remember God has given me everything, his own beloved son. He's graciously given us all. How can we not trust him and respond to him? I hope you see who he really is. He is not lunatic. He is not a liar. He is Lord. Let's pray together. Father, on this Christmas season, as we remember the very work of your son, thank you for not sparing him from us. But you who graciously gave up everything, the cost was so high, and yet you are merciful and true. Lord, we thank you for these regular means of grace as reminders to our souls to remember that you have not let us go. You have not left us alone. You have comforted us even in the darkest moments. Lord, and anything that we offer to you is never a sacrifice. You have the whole galaxy, universe, in the palm of your hands. There is nothing that we can give you that you need at all. But instead, you invite us 
to give our hearts to you, to experience the joy of the Lord, to alongside with you to know what the angels are singing about every day, the wonder of our God. And so when we take this bread and this wine, when we come to this table, we come humbly. We come as not one who are bearing gifts, but we come receiving the greatest gift of all, the work of your son. So Lord, we just praise you. We thank you, O Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.